Draw your attention back to Ephesians 5 this morning. We'll read from God's holy word, Ephesians 5, 13 through 21. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything. To God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for Your Word. Thank You for each one of the body of Christ that is present here this morning. Lord, for those that are not able to be with us, we are thankful for them. Lord, and for members of the body, wherever they are this morning, who would meet to worship you, to be fed from your word. Lord, we ask that you would give them the the blessing of the word this morning, reveal it to their hearts, Lord. May the Holy Spirit give wisdom, give discernment, give insight into what you'd have each member of the body of Christ to hear this morning wherever they are. Lord, we ask that that Spirit would be present with us this morning in a way that we would uh, see and feel His presence. Lord, we know He's present with us, but we long to be fed by the Spirit. Lord, may He make us a people of the Word. May He enable us to be a singing people, to sing Your praises, to sing our thanksgiving, May we be a a people of prayer to seek your will, to follow it, to be led by it. Lord, undertake for us here this morning. We are a needy people. In the name of our Savior, I pray. Amen. Have you uh, ever been to a major sporting event? Pretty much everybody here been to one of those at some time or another in our lives. Uh, sometimes there are some things that uh, some things that these these events that are quite memorable uh, that you you don't don't forget, and they don't always have to do with just the things that are happening on the field. Sometimes it's what's happening in the stands. Maybe as a result of something that's on the field, but sometimes it's what occurs in the stands. I've been to a few of these in my life, and there's something that happens, uh, and all at once, the response or the actions of those sitting in the crowds are, the the reaction is somewhat united. It's it's, uh, a response to something that might happen, almost unanimously bursting forth in some sort of oohs or ahs or groans or cheers from the spectators. Uh, Maybe it's uh, standing together if you're a patriotic person. Maybe it's, and this doesn't happen much anymore, 
unfortunately, but maybe it's standing there and the call comes out to take off, men to take off your hats and you sing the Star Spangled Banner together. United in singing. That can be a memorable and pretty spectacular thing in certain circumstances. I've been at a few of these events when an injury happens and usually the injury happens around where the play is happening and all eyes are focused on that and there's this just this burst of oh or just you can hear the the exhalation of the breath as somebody gets injured i unfortunately have faint memories of being the recipient of one of those injuries and i can still hear the crowd that's why i still walk a little funny sometimes i took a fall and i could just hear the gasp in the crowd as i took a fairly painful fall well, these things can be pretty interesting, but they all center around something that happens externally. It's something that happens outside of us that causes a reaction by us. Now, imagine for a moment that that was something internal, something inside, something happening all together at, at the same time with a group of people that's internal, that's coming from something that is occurring from inside, not from the outside. Almost as if it's pouring out of them, this group of people in one accord. Well, I think that's something that Paul deals with here this morning. In our text this morning, and I pray that the Holy Spirit will gives us, give us eyes to see and ears to hear from God's holy word, uh, what Paul has to say, us, say to us about that as we look at this passage this morning. Uh, since we briefly touched on verse 17 at the very end of uh, our service last Sunday, let's take another glance at it as we, as we begin. Ephesians 5, verse 17, Therefore... Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Paul begins this section with a connection to that which was just previously stated by him, in which he said, because the days are evil. Don't be foolish, Paul says. Don't be unwise. Don't be ignorant, because the days in which we live are evil days. Don't be fooled by this seductive and evil world in which we live or by the will of your own fleshly desires. Don't be fooled by these things. Don't be foolish. The Christian has been set free by the, from the power of sin and has been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. But the remainders of indwelling sin still remain. So Paul says, be careful, be careful. Don't be foolish and be drawn back into the sin from which you have been saved. The days are evil. Ian Murray states this, the evilness of the days is a characteristic of life in every age of world history. The days are evil because we live in a world in active rebellion against God. The gospel of his son and people who have come to believe that gospel and have been transformed by its power and grace. 
Therefore, Paul writes, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do you see that when you look at the days in which we live, do you see that the days are evil? This day in which we live, the world is cruel, it's evil, it's darkness, to use a term that we dealt with last time. And touching briefly on what we looked at last time, live in the light, shine the light in the darkness so that you may understand what the will of the Lord is. That's wisdom. That's where we find wisdom. To grope around in darkness is foolish, isn't it? It's absurdity when you have been given, when you have actually been made light in the Lord. It would be utter foolishness to grope around once again in darkness. William Hendrickson would say it like this, the connective therefore, in verse 17, in the light of the preceding context may be interpreted as meaning, because the danger is so great, the wickedness so appalling, the opportunity so precious, and because constant watchfulness Earnest effort and unwavering zeal are so necessary. Do not be absurd. On the contrary, understand what, the, what is the will of the Lord that is of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not depend on your own acumen. Do not regard the advice of other people as the ultimate touchstone of truth. Let the will of your Lord as he has revealed it by means of his own word and example, and by the mouth of his chosen messengers, be your standard and guide. I'll repeat again what was said last week because it's important enough. I believe that Paul repeated this under inspiration of the Spirit of God to repeat the same basic idea. The word of God should be a light for us, in a world of darkness and evil days where this darkness is everywhere around us, we have a light to shine so that we might walk with confidence. Walk with wisdom. That we might walk with the understanding of what the will of the Lord is. Paul says this in another way in 1 Corinthians 14.20. 1 Corinthians 14.20, he says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Don't be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. And in 2 Corinthians 10.5, he says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Understand what the will of the Lord is. We take our thoughts captive to obey our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in Romans 12, 2, he says, Do not be conformed to this world. Paul tells the church, Don't be conformed to the world with its evil days. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. I'll ask you again, as we asked last Sunday, is this the way you live? 
Do you live in ignorance and foolishness? Or do you live in understanding and wisdom? With understanding concerning what the will of the Lord is. I ask because I have to ask myself this, and far too often I live like a fool. There's always something to be angry over. Something to be worried or anxious over. Always something to mourn over, something to argue about. If I don't look for the will of the Lord in these circumstances that surround those reactions, and if I'm not directed through these things by the light of the Word of God, then I become the foolish one. There's a poem that Rudyard Kipling wrote many years ago called Gods of the Copybook Heading, and he said, The burnt fool's bandaged finger goes wobbling back to the fire. That's the way the foolish man lives. Burnt, bandaged, and right back to the fire. I must preach this message to myself a hundred times for every time I stand up here and preach it. Paul says in Romans 7, 15 through 25, he says, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from the body of death? Paul asks the question, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? And then he answers, thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. If nothing else makes it clear, that should that we must live according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. Paul goes on then in verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. There's something here that I would draw your attention to before we begin to break this verse down. We read in our Scripture reading from Acts 2. On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the apostles as they met together there in that that room. And there were people from all over there as the apostles began to speak. People from different countries, many different languages. And each heard the apostles speaking in their own language. And the message was the mighty works of God that they heard. This was after the outpouring of the Spirit upon them. 
But did you notice what some of the men said who were hearing these apostles speak in their own language? In Acts 2 verse 13, these men said, But others mocking said, They are filled, filled with new wine. They're filled with new wine. But Peter corrected them. And if you remember when we read in in verse 14 through 17 of Acts 2, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. It's only 9 a.m. It's just the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit. I will pour out my spirit. Do you see here that these men saw that the apostles were under the influence of something? They were under the influence of something. And the only frame of reference that they had that would make any sense to their worldly fallen minds was that they must be drunk with wine. They recognized this about the apostles. There was no other explanation that they could think of. I think that is why Paul may be alluding to this here in our passage from Ephesians. Filled or drunk with wine versus being filled with the Holy Spirit. And so he makes the exhortation here. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Paul is making a comparison between being under the influence of something so that he might make a contrast between those two things. First a comparison and then a contrast. He first charges the Christians here not to be drunk with wine, which is debauchery, or as some translations read, excess or dissipation. So don't be intoxicated. Don't be saturated with wine. Don't be soaked with wine. For that is debauchery. It's, it's reckless. It's wild. It's out of control. It's self-indulgent. It's thoughtless. It's the exact opposite of what Paul has charged them to be in verses 15 through 17 of Ephesians 5. This word that we translate debauchery in this passage here in Ephesians 5, is the same word that's used in Luke 15. Do you remember what Luke 15 tells us about? The prodigal son. And in Luke 15, 13, we read that not many days later, after he had been given his share of the inheritance, not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in... Reckless living. Some of your translations may have riotous living. It's the same word as debauchery. This type of living, this manner of being drunk with wine, is in accordance with the old man, the flesh. In fact, it's listed in Galatians 5 in the works of the fruit or the works of the, the fruits of the flesh. In Galatians 5, 19 through 21, we read, Now the works of the flesh are evident, 
sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Drunkenness is of the flesh. To the one, this one that is drunk has lost self-control. He's relinquished the control to the base instincts of the fallen creature. All self-control is gone. Relinquishing that control to the the base instincts of, of fallen man. There are a number of reasons that men and women become intoxicated. There's a number of reasons. Maybe a coping mechanism. May even be self-medication to escape the realities of this evil world. You see, the, the natural man cannot make sense, cannot make sense of the problems that they see in this world. They don't have any way of making sense of it. The natural man, the natural mind, has turned his back on the Creator. And the Creator's reason for saying this is why the world is the way it is, and the Creator's cure, remedy, for solving the problems that exist in the world. They won't seek out the truth of why the fallen world is the way it is. And so the only option is to try and escape from the fear the loneliness, and the pain. And one of the ways that we see that happening over and over again throughout history is drunkenness. This was huge in the culture here in Ephesus. They had a a deity, Bacchus, that they would drink to, and the festivals associated with that idolatrous way as a, as a way, a coping mechanism for escaping the realities of this world. But I'll quote Hendrickson again here. Intoxication, Hendrickson says, is not the effective remedy for the cares of the, and worries of this life. The so-called uplift it provides is not real. It is the devil's poor substitute for the joy unspeakable and full of glory, which God provides. Satan is ever substituting the bad for the good. It is for this reason, I believe, that Paul makes mention of wine. This is not merely some moral duty he is trying to give us here. Not trying to throw us into legalism. That doesn't fit with the context of what Paul is saying. There are those who would pull this out of context and seek to build a foundation on just this part of the verse and then lose what I believe that Paul is actually trying to get us to understand here. It's not the comparison, but it's the contrast that Paul is wanting us to see. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. We have mentioned what this drunkenness is. It's debauchery, it's reckless, it's wild, out of control, self-indulgent, thoughtless. 
But the contrast is being filled with the Spirit leads to true praise and thanksgiving. This is no counterfeit remedy for the ills of the world. It leads to all the opposites of what Paul is contrasting it with. It's not debauchery, it's measured. It's not reckless, wild, or out of control. Instead, it is gentle and self-controlled. It is not self-indulgent, it is sacrificial. It's not thoughtless, but it's led by wisdom, led by the light. We read earlier that drunkenness was listed among the works of the flesh. Now listen to the fruits of the Spirit, which indwells the believer who is to be filled with the Spirit. Galatians 5, through 23 gives us this list. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. The Christian is to be filled. That is the language, this is language that should immediately sound familiar to us. We have read the word filled over and over again in Ephesians. It should be immediately familiar to us. This is the plan of God to be filled with the Spirit for all those who he chose before the foundation of the world. Brian Chappelle states, The language of filling is too significant in the book of Ephesians for this reference to be incidental. At the end of the first chapter of this epistle, we learn that the church is Christ's body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And in the third chapter, Paul prayed that the Ephesians would know all the dimensions of the love of Christ so that they may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And in the fourth chapter, we learn that he ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe and puts his gifts in the church so that we might become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Now we are urged to put away something in the world that holds us under its influence, excess wine, and instead be filled with the Spirit by which we have already learned the fullness of Christ comes. In summary, Chappelle says, the apostle is encouraging and urging God's people to be filled with the Spirit of Him who fills up everything with the purpose of renewing and redeeming the universe for His glory. Be filled with the Spirit. This being filled with the Spirit has the idea of being constantly filled. This is not to to do away with the one-time act of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that comes upon a new believer but it's speaking about the constant and continuous influence of the Spirit on that believer and in that believer's life. I believe this is the way in which David speaks of something in Psalm 23 when he said, my cup overflows. Why is it overflowing? Because it, something is keeping, pour, keeps pouring into his cup. This is the Spirit being filled with the Spirit. The believer is constantly being empowered and renewed by the Holy Spirit. 
He is constantly being applied. The Holy Spirit is constantly being applied and working in the believer's life until it completely bubbles over and just bubbles out of the believer. Filled with the Spirit. There should be no area in our lives where the Spirit does not reside in fullness. To be filled means to be present in every area of life. Public and private, internal, external, heart and mind. All these things. But let's not be foolish and try to have a part that is blocked off and reserved for the flesh. can't be filled with the Spirit when you're blocking off an area for your own fleshly gratification. The fleshly way which Paul uses drunkenness as an example of is always tearing down. It's always tearing down. I don't know anyone who has ever really been pleased that they've been intoxicated. Have you? Usually leaves them with a pounding head, sick stomach, miserable. What I often hear, because I hear it a lot, especially when I was on the road, working as a uniform officer, I would always hear, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. I wish I hadn't drank so much. That wasn't a good idea. Is this not the case when you slip into any sin? It beats us up with guilt. It harms us. It tears us down. It breaks our spirit. But the fullness of the spirit never leads to this. Never. It's always building up. It's comforting. Giving light and wisdom. Giving us life. Never tearing down. Paul gives an example of this here in our text. What flows out of being filled with the Spirit? Ephesians 5, 19 through 21. This is an example. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The phrase that Paul uses here is quite fascinating to me, addressing one another, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, The Spirit-filled believer seeks to edify the other members of the body. They are one Spirit. Remember? One body. One Lord. Does this not make sense in the context of everything that Paul has been dealing with earlier in Ephesians? Doesn't this all fit together? Is it any wonder that this, this epistle is inspired by the Holy Spirit? The one who should indwell us in fullness. And what is the one way that is displayed? This being filled with the Spirit by addressing one another. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, while singing these and making melody to the Lord with our hearts, 
They are, the, the believers being filled with the Holy Spirit are of one accord. Internally. One accord. Lifting up their voices together to the Lord. There are some who believe that Paul is just repeating himself here and that psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs are just his, him using repetition to repeat the, uh, as, a, as a way to understand. Uh, and it's all the same thing. The psalms, uh, hymns, and spiritual songs are all the same thing. But the vast majority of commentators don't see it this way, and I think that there is uh, ample examples in Scripture as to why these should be divided into three different areas. Uh, a psalm... That's the, probably the easiest one for us to recognize because we have a book called Psalms. Uh, they are the collected poems of Israel, the hymn book of Israel, if you will. Uh, they're meant to be sung and accompanied by instruments. Some of these are even directed to be sung with certain instruments. For an example of this, look at Psalm 4 and 5. Psalm 4 is to be sung with stringed instruments. Psalm 5 with the flutes. And there is direction included with the psalm from the writer how that psalm is to be sung. And what are they doing? They're praising the Lord. Thankfulness. Psalm 103, verse 1 and 2 is an example of this. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Psalm 96, 1 through 4. O oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous work among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Psalm 149, 1, praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song, His praise in the assembly of the godly. What about hymns? Hymns are songs of praise directed to God, songs of divinity. Martin Lloyd-Jones states that this is probably the case for 1 Timothy 3.16. He says that this was most likely a, so a song, a, a, a hymn sung by the early church. Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. One of the commentators states that this may have very well been a refrain that was bounced back and forth throughout the people that were there. Manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, Proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the word, and maybe all together taken up into glory. If you remember what I stated last week, there are those who believe this was the case for Ephesians 5.14. Where the apostle was alluding to the prophet Isaiah's words, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. There is some uh, extra biblical early writings from the church that make you believe that this was maybe a hymn that was sung that alludes back to the prophet Isaiah. Well, in spiritual songs, they're a lyric of a spiritual nature as opposed to secular songs. We may have evidence of these in scriptures, some instances that are a burst of adoration and thanksgiving for something that has taken place. 
They may be an expression of spiritual thought and feelings about spiritual matters and truths. They are, a full, they are from a heart moved to proclaim these things. They are outbursts of praise and worship. An example would be the prayer or the song of Hannah. If we go to 1 Samuel chapter 2. And Hannah prayed. 1 Samuel chapter 2 tells us, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord, my mouth derides my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not ignorance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken and the feeble bind on strength, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she has many children, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust and he lifts up the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Spiritual song. Another example of this would be Zechariah in Luke 1 and Mary in Luke 1. We won't take the time to read those this morning, but Zechariah's spiritual song can be found in Luke 1, 67 through 79 and Mary's Luke 1, 46 through 55. I would encourage you to read those later on today. And why are these believers addressing one another in these psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? Why are they singing and making melody to, melody to the Lord with their hearts? Our text tells us in verse 20, giving thanks always and forever, for everything, excuse me, to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has already stated in Ephesians 5, 4, if you look back at that verse, let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Now he says it's not just your talking, but also your singing. Also your singing. How many times has, has thankfulness led you to break out into song? You ever had that happen in your life? Maybe you don't sing it out loud, but you've got a song in your heart. You ever been so overcome with thankfulness, thankfulness that you just can't hold it in? 
my father-in-law. Grace's dad, who prayed for myself, had carried a picture of me in his pocket when I was a little boy. Prayed every day for my salvation before he even had any clue I'd be his son-in-law. At a birth or a wedding, he'd just break forth into song. He'd break forth in the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. That was his favorite. After our wedding, after David and Jessica's wedding, after one of the kids was born when he, when he was here, he'd break forth into singing. I'm sure he did it at his house when he wasn't here for one of the grandkids' births. Well, when does Paul say that we are to lift up our voices in giving thanks? Always. This is to be a continuous action for the child of God. And not just always, but also for everything. At all times and for all things, we are to give thanks. In good times and in bad, in joy and in mourning, in ease and in trials, in ordinary times and extraordinary times, in all times and for all things. And it is thanks that's to be given to God the Father, who is the fountain of all these spiritual blessings we have all received and who will grant us even more in the final consummation of all things. And then how is this thanks to be given? What is it to be given according to in our text in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ who has purchased all these things for us by whom and of whom we are made partakers of all these blessings and the promise. Giving thanks always and for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And lastly, we will end on the verse we will begin with next time. <clears throat> Being filled with the Spirit <clears throat> leads us to live in a way the flesh never would. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the contrast. Flesh opposed to the Spirit. Old man opposed to the new man. Filled with wine versus being filled with the Spirit. The flesh would never submit to another. The flesh is proud. The flesh is arrogant. The flesh wants what's best for itself. And it has no clue what's best for itself. The flesh would never submit to another but the Spirit leads us to think of others in humility to be more significant than ourselves. I'll come back to this, Lord willing, next week as I believe this is the foundational element and the summary of everything else that Paul has to say in chapter 5, verse 22, all the way through chapter 6, verse 9.
as I was thinking about how to wrap things up this morning, trying to find a way to illustrate these things Paul has been dealing with. I couldn't find a way to illustrate these things from anything here on earth. Everything about here, this world, is tainted with sin. Everything. I thought about our singing together here. We're blessed to be able to sing together. I thought about a conference I'm going to in September. Finally have a break in some work things and get away for a while to go to a conference. And About how I'm looking forward to listening to the preaching of God's Word, but one of the things I'm looking forward to is to be in a, a large room. I think about what this would be like, to be in this large room with a few thousand men. Lifting up our voices. Singing to the Lord. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Making melody in our hearts to the Lord. You can imagine what that will be like. The thing that's hard to understand and hard to put into words. There's something internal that unites all of us. And how do you explain this? The Spirit of God indwelling the believer, the same Spirit that is in every one of us who have been saved, how do you, how do you describe what happens when we raise our voices to the Lord together? That spirit that indwells, being filled with the spirit, leading us to join our hearts and our voices in one accord. Almost if that spirit is, is coming out of each of us and joining together to make one praise, one thanksgiving, one adoration to the Lord. It's this mystical union of believers which connects all of us and joins each member, each part of the body together. You can't describe this, but it's just miraculous. And this is what takes place even here when we lift up our voices in song. But I do look forward to the experience that I'm going to have in September because I think there's going to be about 8,000 men at this conference from all over the United States, maybe even all over the world. Fellow believers, fellow heirs of the same inheritance, all indwelt by the same Spirit. But even that is going to be imperfect. Not because of the Spirit, but because of the flesh. What hinders our worship? You ever think about this? What hinders our worship? The flesh. 
What hinders our unity? The flesh. What keeps me from being able to sit back in the back and listen to a message and not have my mind wander? The flesh. What hinders your prayers when you, when you get down on your knees and you try and pray? What hinders that? The flesh. So where can I look to see what Paul talks about here pictured perfectly? Where can I look? Where can I look to have an illustration, a picture of this? Where am I going to look to see a picture of this when everything here is tainted by the flesh? Well, the Apostle John was granted a vision to see the revelation of Jesus Christ given to him by God. And John was told to write these things that he saw in this vision and put them in a book and send them to the seven churches in Asia Minor. In that revelation, we have some mention of what I believe is the perfect picture of what Paul has been telling us about this morning. Worship, praise, singing, filled with the Spirit, no sin, no flesh, nothing to hinder us from full and complete worship. In Revelation 5, we see the elders sing a song, then the angels, then the hosts of heaven. Look with me at Revelation 5, 8 through 14. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then John says, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. One more example. Revelation 14. Verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with Him 144,000 who had His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of a harpist's playing on their harps. 
And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. I believe that that 144,000 is a symbolic number, not a literal number. This is the redeemed of the Lord in totality. Old and New Testament saints together in their entirety, in their fullness. Who is it that could learn that song? Who is it? Those who had been redeemed. Those filled with the one spirit. All lifting their voices in perfect accord. No flesh. No sin. Perfectly with one accord before the throne of God in the light of Jesus Christ. Singing a new song. I don't know about you. I look forward to learning that new song. If you're not in the Spirit, I can speak for Dad or I, either one, love to sit down with you and talk to you about the state of your soul. To speak to you of your need and of how Christ can fill everything that you lack. You don't even have to get yourself ready. You don't have to clean yourself up. Your cleanliness is filthiness to God. You just got to come to Christ. I think we'll close things out a little bit differently here this morning.